this morning, um, we're going to be talking about family relationships, how appropriate, right? We're talking about relationships. The Beveers did a great job for two weeks talking about marriage specifically. Get the book, get the DVDs, good stuff. Pastor Nick last week and his beard gave us a great message on friendships. And wasn't that good last week? The friendships, I got a lot. I took a lot of notes on that one too. Today we're talking about family relationships. Family relationships, other one relationship that God expects you to not walk away from, but to be committed to because, because it's family. It goes deeper than just the, there's, there's simple relationships that we have in the world, that we have relationships with people. Say when you go shopping or go to a restaurant. Anybody ever been to a restaurant and you had a bad experience with the people in the restaurant, the waiters or the staff or working in retail or something, so bad that you pretty much blacklisted that place and you will never go back there again. Anybody have a short blacklist of, of places that, you know, like your spouse goes, hey, you want to eat here? And you're like, oh, let me tell you about there. I'm never eating there again, right? And you walk away, you have the right to, right? Because the relationship you have with them, it's kind of based on, I'm a consumer. I come here to get service. And if you don't meet my needs, I'm out of here. There's a story that we just heard, my wife and I were talking about. A friend of ours, she was at a at an establishment, an ice cream establishment. It was in California, so you don't have to worry. It wasn't somewhere on an island that you have to worry about. It wasn't anywhere in, in Hawaii or on Oahu or even in Kanaohi or whatever he said. Um, <laughs> it was in the mainland. So uh, our friend goes to this ice cream place. I'm not going to name the name because that would be harmful, maybe. I don't know. But they, it's a place where they scoop the um, ice cream and they put it on a cold stone. So <laughs> what? It's just how they, that's what they do. They mix it, they get the mixings, and they, they, they use their hands, and they mix it in there. I'm not going to tell you the name of the place. But she ate at this place, and the, the guy served her and mixed in all the stuff and did whatever, you know, and then gave her the cone or the cup or whatever, and she's eating it. It's Rocky Road. She got a couple mix-ins, and she's eating it. It's pretty good, crunchy nuts or whatever. And then one nut is like a little chewy. She's chewing on it. She's working on it. She's going... This guy's, you know, shoot a gummy bear into there. Why is this one so chewy? Is this beef jerky ice cream? What's going on, right? But she keeps working on it. Then finally she's like, this is ridiculous. What is this thing? Spits it out. Guess what it was? A Band-Aid. Oh, a Band-Aid from the guy working the deal. He worked a little hard and it came off. And Now here's the worst part of the story. The worst part of the story wasn't that there's a Band-Aid in my mouth that I spit out. The worst part is that she was working at it for that long, <laughs> chewing it, getting all the flavor out of that thing, and then she spit it out. Now, then the guy has the, the boldness or whatever he thinks is like uh, a, a apology to say, oh, I'm sorry, can I just get you another one? And it's like, like that's gonna make up for it, right? Now your Band-Aid's off, so whatever's on you is coming in there directly no, you can't get me another one. I'm never, ever coming back here again. That's disgusting. I just ate a Band-Aid, right? So here's the point I'm trying to get at is there's relationships that we have in this life that you have every right. If someone lets you down or things get messy or ugly or weird or disgusting or chewy, right, you can just turn away, end the relationship, leave, walk away, and never come back. However, according to the Word of God, family is not that kind of relationship where you can just turn and walk away from. Are you guys hearing me? God makes a big deal about family in the Bible. See, God, in His relationship with us, He could have described it in lots of relationship terms. He does in some, in some areas in Scripture. He could have said, I'm the boss, and you're my employees. And He could have said, I'm the Lord, and you're my slaves. And there's parts where we understand that, yeah, we're slaves to Christ, right? But 
What he, he likes most often to use is the terminology of family. He says, I am God the Father. This is my son, Jesus. He puts it in his relationship with Jesus. He puts it in terms of family. But then, even further than that, he calls us his father. And we come into a relationship with him. He adopts us out of the sinful world that we're into and, and that spiritual bondage. And he adopts us right into his own family because of what his son, Jesus Christ, did. Jesus calls himself our friend, our king, our savior. But he also calls himself our brother. And, and he also says, when you become Christians, you're now children and God is your father, and we're to refer to one another as brothers and sisters. So God is big on family. And there's a verse that I want to read to you guys right now from 1 Peter. Peter's talking to Christians, but he's basically saying, you, you got to act like family to one another, which would say if Christians are supposed to act like family and family is good, then how much more so are real blood connected or marriage, whatever, real family is supposed to be even that much more so. Look at 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. He says, finally, all of you should be of one mind, you should sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters. He's saying, you should be family Christians, but how much more so real family ought to be family. And he describes it by saying this. This is what family looks like. Be tenderhearted. Keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. Did you catch that last part? That's not an option. He says, God has called you to do this. And it's like, oh man, I'm committed to this thing. But it doesn't end there because then he says, comma, and he will grant you his blessing. So there's a promise attached to it. As God can give you the best life possible, he can, he can make your life a blessing if you understand that you can't walk away from family, that you actually have an obligation to actually bring light into whatever darkness and whatever family problems are going on in your family. Now, the way that people react and act towards you, you can't change all of that, but you can change who you are to try to make the family a better place. Are you guys getting me on this one? So today the message is for if I want my family to be better, it kind of starts with me. I got to look at how I'm acting because I have power to influence this family in a good way or a bad way. So as I'm talking about this, I don't want you guys to come into the impression of going, yeah, but Pastor Carl, you have no idea what I'm going through right now. Hey, you don't even know what's going on. I'm about to get divorced, or I've been divorced, or you know what? My family hates me, or I hate them, or this, there's turmoil, there's conflict, there's fights over money. You don't even know. You're just the pastor up there. It's your birthday. You're happy. You have pizza and Swedish fish, and you have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, let me tell you this. In my own life right now, as I preach this message, I'm telling you guys honestly, I'm preaching this message from the mess, not from the victory. That I'm preaching this message right now in my family, not my beautiful family that's here right now. We're doing good. But in my relationship with my parents right now, it's kind of a mess. It's not ideally where it should be right now. And I understand that it's, it's not all on my part, but I have to do my part. Are you guys hearing me? I've done my part. I'm doing my part. And what we're preaching about today has helped me immeasurably. But... I'm not on the other side of victory yet. I'm preaching this because I know this works and it makes things better while I'm still in the mess. So I'm not going to give you guys all the details of what's going on in my personal life. And the reason is because it's not over yet. It hasn't all happened. It hasn't all sorted itself out yet. The victory isn't there, but I believe in God and I trust in him. And that if I adhere to the plans he's got in his word and the lesson from today, things can get better on my side at least and in my life and we're that much closer towards victory. Are you guys hearing me on that? I want to just be real clear. I don't want to be like, like oh, Carl's hiding his stuff. I'm going to tell you that I'm going through some stuff right now, but I have freedom. I have um, 
I have love. I have excitement. This is a new season in my life. It's not a season of, of hurt or tears or any of that stuff anymore. I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I'm right before God, and I'm going to walk through that door and walk down that path, and whatever else is the problem that's out there, some of that at some point has got to be up to God and some of the other side, and that's where I'm going to leave it, but I just want you guys to know that. Like, when we talk about this stuff, today we're talking about an average Joe. We're talking actually about a dysfunctional family. You would say, wait, we're talking about Joseph? You know who Joseph was in the Bible? He was the great-grandson of Abraham, who you go, wow, man of God, the covenant with God, that, that God was going to bless him and all of his descendants and of his people, the Jewish nation, was going to come hope that was going to bless the entire world. And we know that's what happened through Jesus Christ, the lineage, right? But you're thinking, man, this, this guy Joseph we're talking about today, he comes from a holy family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now his son, Joseph, these guys must be perfect, and I can learn from them, but I don't know if I can relate to them. Let me tell you, the guy's the opposite. Just like me in my life, this guy, Joseph, had what we call a dysfunctional family. Anybody feel like your family's dysfunctional? Come on, let's be honest. Because if I ask this question, anybody's family out there perfectly functional? Not too many hands go up. Come on, really? Like, you're perfectly functional? You're awesome? You're perfect? Everyone just totally complete? No, we all go through stuff. I think we're all, in some ways, a little bit messed up. We're human that means we're born into sin. That means we've got opinions and we butt heads with people. And what I want you to realize in this story here today, family lessons from an average Joe, it's kind of a messed up story, and yet there's hope and there's healing in the midst of it. And I hope that that's what you gain today. So here's the summary. Genesis chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50. That's a lot of chapters. We're not going to read it all. If you want to go home and read it, the story is really good, really interesting. Stops at all the details. I'm going to give you the kind of the summarized, the Cliff Notes version of it here today. And we're going to pull out the lessons that God has for us. You guys ready? Okay, pay attention right now because I'm going to tell you the story of a guy named Joe right now. Okay, here's the deal. This guy named Joe, Joseph, he's a 17-year-old shepherd boy. He doesn't get along with all of his brothers. He's got one sister, but he's got 11 other brothers. Now, he's number 11 in the list of all the brothers being born. So he's second to the youngest. So most of them, they're all older than him. But here's kind of the problem is he's young, he's immature, he's a little bit cocky. But his dad kind of enables him to be this way because dad goes, oh, Joe, he's my favorite. I love him the best. And, I, and, I, and he's the greatest because I, you know, I had him in my old age. And you know what? I love him so much. I'm going to give him this coat. This awesome coat, this, everybody has robes and everybody has coats, but my boy Joe, he gets a coat of many colors. You guys heard this one before, right? You get the special one. So he gives him the special coat. That makes all the brothers hate him that much more. Not only that, but he's a tattletale. Anytime the older brothers get into trouble, he comes running back, dad, dad, guess what Simeon did? Guess what Reuben did? He tattles on all of them. Anybody got the tattletale in the family? You know one? You're just like, oh yeah, I do. Anybody, you are that one? Come on, be honest. <laughs> You take a special pride in like, ha ha, I'm going to get you. But here's Joseph, 17 years old, tattletale, brothers hate him. Make matters worse now, besides dad's feeding that into him. He comes one day and he goes, hey, I had a dream. He tells his dream to all of his brothers. He goes, guess what my dream was? We're all out in the fields, gathering the grain, bundling them up. My bundle is standing right there. And all of your guys' bundles bow down to my bundle. Isn't that cool? And they're just like, oh, really, huh? Right? And they're just like ready to go. Then, then he has another dream. Comes back the next day. And he goes, oh, I had another dream. And they're like, yeah, right. That's, that's all we want to hear about your other stupid dream, Joseph. You know? He comes back and he goes, in this dream, the sun, the moon, 
and 11 stars all bowed down to me. So now he's like talking about mom and dad and the 11 brothers. So now the whole family's a little bit like, well, hey, who do you think you are, kid? And it says it made the brothers hate him even more. So much that one day his dad goes, hey, the, the boys are all out working in the fields. Joe, go, ch- go check on them. Go see what's going on. Joseph goes out in the field to check on his brothers. They see him coming from a far way off, and they go, we hate that kid. We hate him so bad. We don't have one kind word to say about him. It says that in, in scripture. It says, Let's kill him. Let's wipe him out right now. We're a good ways away from home. Wipe him out, throw his body in a pit. Dad will never know, and we'll be done with him. We're tired of his dreams and everything, right? So they talk about it for a little while. He comes closer, and they go, now, let's not kill him, but you know what? Let's just throw him in this empty well over here. So they drop him down. He's in the well. What are we going to do with him? These traders, these merchants were coming by on their way to the land of Egypt, which is like 200 miles away. They come by, and, and the brothers now go, hey, you know what, Joseph? Uh, we want to kill you. We're not going to kill you, but let's get rid of them. Let's sell them to the slave traders. They sell them to the slave traders. They distance uh, 200 miles away now, and they're in the land of, of Egypt. They came from the land of Canaan. We actually have a map. Let's take a look at this map. This is where Joseph started off. He sold to the caravan, and he, and he journeyed. He's in the land of Canaan, which today would be like modern-day Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Israel. And he goes 200 miles away over to Egypt. He's in the land of Egypt. They sell him to this guy named Potiphar. Potiphar works for the Pharaoh. He's like the chief of the palace guard. He works for the Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, right? So now he's a slave in someone else's house. Here's the deal, though. Everywhere that Joseph goes, the Lord is with him, it says in Scripture. He still honors God, even though he's been uh, fully treated now, kicked out from his family, betrayed, sold as a slave. He goes in this guy Potiphar's house. He's a rich guy. And he, everything he does is so good and prospers under his leadership that Potiphar makes him like the ruler over his whole household. No one higher except him. He goes, manage all my stuff. You're doing a great job. God is on your side. You're being blessed. And so Joe kind of gets promoted. But then Potiphar's wife starts taking notice of young Joe, right? And young Joe is like growing into a strapping young lad, right? And she's like, hey, buddy, come. Let's go. Let's get down. Let's do the dirty. Let's get Let's make it happen, right? And Joe's like, no, no, I can't do it. She goes, come on, come on, right? She tries to get with him. She tries to hook up with him. She tries to put him in her bed and, you know, what comes from there, right? And so she comes at him, all aggressive, grabs his shirt, the whole deal, and he's just like, no, gives a quick shuck and jive and slips out of his shirt, you know, and runs away without his shirt. And and she gets mad because she's rejected, right? And she's mad. So she she frames him. Hey, This guy tried to rape me. Rape, rape. Look, he left his shirt. Potiphar comes, his boss, who he respects, comes and believes the wife and then betrays Joseph and goes, you know, I don't even want to hear your side of the story. I'm throwing you into prison. He's been a slave in the house for 11 years. Now he gets thrown in prison. How he's in prison, God is still with him. He's still a man of integrity. He's he's growing. He's learning. And he gets promoted over the whole jail except for the, the chief jailer. And he goes, you're doing such a good job. In the meantime, he's sitting there in prison. He's bummed that he's in prison, but God's with him. Uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer, which is the guy that tastes the wine to make sure there's no poison before Pharaoh drinks it, his cupbearer and his chief baker get thrown into prison, right? He gets a bad meal one day, Pharaoh, and he goes, throw those guys in jail. So they go to jail. They have a couple of dreams. They meet Joseph in jail. They go, Joe, we don't know what these dreams mean. These are super weird. And he goes, you know what? God's with me. He's given me some, some uh, gifts. I think I can interpret your dreams. So they tell him the dreams. And this is what Joseph says. Look, I hate to to break it to you, Mr. Baker, but your dream means you're going to go back to Pharaoh and he's going to kill you. Sorry about that. I'm just a messenger. Don't shoot the messenger, buddy. Right? And with the cupbearer, he goes, cupbearer, you, you're doing good. You're going to find favor. You'll go back to Pharaoh. 
then you'll be good. You'll keep your position and everything's going to go good. But when you go back to Pharaoh, could you do me a solid? Look, I'm interpreting your dream. Would you help me out here? Would you tell Pharaoh about me that I've been wrongly imprisoned, that I've been wrongly sold into slavery? Can you get me out of here, please? You're my friend. I've, I'm doing this for you. Yes, absolutely, Joe. I'll do that. So sure enough, the dreams come true. The baker gets released. The cupbearer gets released. The baker gets killed, unfortunately, right? Sorry about that dream coming true for you, buddy. But um, the cupbearer is restored to power, but he completely forgets about Joe back in jail for two whole years. So Joe's sitting in jail, still in prison, just going, man, when am I going to get released? Pharaoh now, king of Egypt, has a dream. His dream is this. Um, uh, I had two dreams. I don't understand them. Everybody's trying to interpret them. Nobody knows what's up. The cupbearer goes, well, oh, that reminds me. I have a friend from two years ago. I totally forgot to say this to you, Pharaoh. And poor Joseph's in jail, right? And he goes, there's a guy in jail, a Hebrew slave. He was able to interpret my dream, dream and it came true. Pharaoh says, go get him. They bring him to Pharaoh. He interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. Look, um, I can't do this, but my God can do this. He's going to give me the ability to interpret. So sure enough, he goes, here's your dreams. You're going to have seven years of prosperity in all the land. Fruitfulness, the crops are going to bloom. You're going to have all this supplies. But after seven years of prosperity, seven years of the worst famine you've ever seen. Everybody's going to be hungry, thirsty, not having anything. And um, you need to be aware that this is what your dreams mean. So here's what I think. Using wisdom, in the next seven years, you should portion out supplies and rations and save it all. So when the seven years of famine come, you'll be good, you'll be protected, and you'll be well-fed, and everybody else will be hurting. So sure enough, the Pharaoh goes, that's incredible. You interpreted my dreams. I'm promoting you to second in command of the whole nation of Egypt under me. No one is higher. Everywhere he went, the Lord was with him. He succeeded in everything he did. So he rises to power. Seven years of, of good, good productivity come, success. Joseph's over there saving everything. The famine hits, and sure enough, everybody else experiences the famine. They all come to Egypt. They all come to Joseph. And they go, we need to buy food from you. So he's giving everybody food all the way to the fact that 200 miles away from the land of Canaan, where his family's from, all the brothers now come, and they don't recognize Joe. He looks different. He's, got, he's, he's grown up. It's been 20 years since they've seen him. He looks different. He's got different clothes on. Pharaoh gave him a new name, so they don't call him Joe anymore. So they don't recognize. He's probably got the dark eyeliner and mascara like you see in all the mummy movies, right? The Egyptians always have that cool stuff going on, the, the emo look or whatever. He probably has that going on. The brothers don't know who he is. They're like, can we buy food? And he goes, yes, you can. He goes, oh, I know these guys. Here's Joseph's chance. I could kill them all right now. I have the power to do that. No one would ever need to know. I've been sitting on this revengeful thought for 20 years. I could wipe them all out. And it kind of crosses his mind. He actually hassles his brothers a little bit. He actually goes, hey, you know what? You guys are spies. No, we're not. We don't even know you, sir. And he hassles them. He scares them for a little while, several meetings. Finally, he breaks down. And he just, he says this, which I think is so cool in scripture. He says, uh, come here. I'm your brother, the one you sold. And they're just like, ah, scared, you know, freaking out. But he says this, don't worry. Don't be angry at yourselves for selling me because God has put me here to save people from starving. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he just has the integrity to say, man, I could get revenge. I want to, I could be bitter, but I'm not going to because I believe that God put me where I'm at and it's supposed to work. So what he does is he shows unconditional love to his brothers and he tells them all, go back home, get, get my father, bring the rest of your family, all your livestock, everything. You're coming to live with me in Egypt. And they all had food and they're all taking care of all the rest of their life. He left a legacy. Uh, Joe's brothers and two of his sons would go on to become 
the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jewish nation, and you know the rest, Old Testament history. So it ends in a really good thing, but here's what I want to point out, guys. It's an ugly, messed up, dysfunctional family and a weird story along the way, but some of us are right there. I mean, none of us have it this bad, let's be honest. A lot of us are in bad relationships and things are going on in our family right now. Anybody here been sold into slavery recently? Probably not. Thursday? No, probably. None of us have, right? Here's what I want you to see. There's amazing lessons from the struggle, from the dysfunction that God can use in our lives to bring us healing. And I want to look at those things right now, and I want to give you five things I want you to write down. And i got to go fast through this. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but let's hang in there and let's go for this. You ready? Here's the first one. You can write this one down, the lesson that we see in Joseph's life. Number one, first lesson for family relationships, love fairly. Two words, love fairly. Joe's dad showed favoritism. He didn't love fairly with everybody. He treated Joe different from the rest of everybody, and he didn't love fairly to the other brothers. Now, here's the deal. I think we are called to not love equally. We can't love equally, because not all people are the same, and the same words and the same actions don't work on every single person, because we're all different. We can't really love completely equally. We got to love differently, but we can love fairly. I did a funeral a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, A mom and a grandma and a great grandma had passed away and gone to be with the Lord. And in this funeral, we're talking about her life, and she was married five times. She had eight kids. She had 21 grandkids and 11 great-grandkids. And in, in before the, the service, I, I asked one of the grandkids, I go, how was she able to have a relationship with all of you guys? Did, was she even able to? And actually, one of the granddaughters said, it was amazing, but she loved us all differently that each one of us felt like the special one. Like this, in a good way, not special, like sped kind of. I'm talking like special near to my heart. You guys get what I'm saying, right? Sometimes I say that and people, I'm not special, but okay. She loved them in such a way that she loved them all fairly, loved them differently, but she connected individually. You know, a lot of hassles and problems and heartaches come when we show favoritism and it builds resentment with other people in the family. Here's what I'm talking about. Sometimes we're so good and we love our kids so well and our hearts have gone cold to our spouse. And we just think, oh, well, fine, well, that's how it is. We're just going to be roommates. That's not okay. That's, that's favoritism. That's not loving fairly. Now, I've got a, a wonderful family. I mean, can I show a picture of my kids really quickly? This is my, my wife and kids. This is us on one of our better days. Talk about dysfunction. No, we're, we're, we have fun. We put the fun back in dysfunction. This is my family. And this is, I went to Japan and I got everybody wigs. And it's my wife, Kanani, in the blue wig. Uh, my oldest daughter, Kylie, in the pink wig over here, 16. My son in the back with the afro and the shades, 13-year-old Isaac. And then my Goldilocks here, uh, Sammy. Samantha is six years old. So I look at my my family, and I think, you know what, I want to love them all fairly, but I can't love them all equally. Yesterday, I went to the beach, took my son body surfing. The waves were like overhead, and we were just getting worked, and we were getting barrels with the GoPro, and you know, all of that kind of stuff at the beach, and it was just fun getting beat up by waves. But if I take my six-year-old into those same waves, thinking I'm going to love her equally, I'm going to drown my six-year-old, right? Doesn't make sense. I can't show equal love. I have to, with her, love fairly and go in the back of my truck and put blankets and bungee cords and her iPad and all this stuff, and I make a little fort with her in the back of my truck, right, because she's six, and she loves that stuff. If I try that stuff on my 16-year-old daughter, she's going to laugh me out of the driveway. Like, what are you? I don't want a fort. You know, buy me an iPod. You know, like, okay, okay. I gotta love differently. You guys get what I'm trying to say here? Is that we gotta love people fairly. You can't love them all super equally because this is what you gotta remember. God loves each of us fairly, but not equally. 
he treats us all differently because we all have different walks of life, personalities, giftings. If the discipline that he shows me in my life maybe showed up for you, it would blow you out of the water and you're like, I can't even handle that. But the, the victories in my life that, that may seem like, oh man, that's so personal, that's, that's a personal touch that God knows and I'm just rejoicing over it, to you it might mean nothing because lo God loves us all individually and fairly. Does that make sense? See, the, Joseph's dad, Jacob, he kind of messed up. He showed this favoritism and, he, and he, he created something where the other brothers disrespected him. They had resentment for, for Joseph and it wasn't a good thing. So love fairly, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing that I think can be applied to family relationships. Think before you speak. Anybody ever heard that one before? Think before you speak. Those are good words right there. Joseph, 17 years old, immature, cocky kid. Dad's feeding him into being the golden boy and he's special and he's enabled and all of this stuff. He probably should have thought a little bit before coming to his brothers and saying, I had a dream. It's a pretty awesome dream. You guys all bow down to me. He probably should have thought that went through, kept his mouth shut or waited for a more appropriate time before he brought that news on because you know what that led to? That led to him almost being murdered and him being sold off into slavery. So it's think before you speak. To quote um, a, a, a well... Uh, knowledgeable man, you know, I don't know, a smart guy, he's a singer, a songwriter, a poet of his generation. He's a movie producer, movie director, an actor. To quote him, um, it's O'Shea Jackson is his name. Can we show a picture of him? One of my favorite quotes from him is, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> now that's just common sense, right? That's just good, that's good advice, right? Check yourself before you wreck yourself. His real name is Ice Cube. And I'm not showing this up here because I'm trying to glorify Ice Cube because I think the brother right here, he heard it from somewhere before. And where I think he heard it from was possibly the word of God that says this in Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. The mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. And then in James 1:19, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Can I get an amen on that one? Come on, that's good right there. Thank you, Ice Cube. But thank you, Proverbs. Thank you, James. Thank you what the Word of God says. Thank you what Jesus says in loving one another. Sometimes you gotta think before you speak. Sometimes it can be good information, but bad timing. Can I get an amen to that one? Right, there's just certain times, maybe of the month, Let me finish. Or the week. Or the day. Or the year. Take it easy. When we might have something good to say, but it is bad timing. And you better keep your mouth shut and you better think before you speak. When someone's having a rough day, there's certain things you don't need to do to add the stress. Am I making sense? And see, there's times when you get into an argument and someone's going to egg you into something in family because we know how to push buttons. And the best thing you can do is think about what you're going to say before you speak it out because maybe you shouldn't even be speaking it at all, right? So there's bad timing. There's how you say it. I think that possibly Joe could have come and said, guys, I don't even know what to do with this. super weird. I don't know what this means. I had this dream. It's, I don't get it. Can you guys help me out? It sounds kind of weird, maybe kind of dumb. And maybe if you humble yourself and say the dream like that, your brothers are going to go, well, I don't know. Let's sort this thing out. But when you come with a guess who had a good dream, <laughs> guess who's bowing down, right? You, you just, it's more importantly, some of us know, sometimes how you say it is more important than what you say. Because I can give you the I love you, or I can give you the grumpy like out the door, I love you, whatever, I love you, right? 
saying the same words, but it's how I say it that makes all the difference. Think before you speak. Maybe do yourself a favor sometimes and don't even say it at all. Maybe God gave you a thought or something that all he wants is for you to pray into it, that you don't need to even speak the words out because it's going to do damage. That you love the Lord and you want someone to find Jesus and you just keep on talking to them about it day after day after day and God's going, how about you don't do that? Because the more words you use, you're pushing them farther away. Why don't you just sit back and quietly pray for that person? Trust me, I'm going to open up the door of opportunity. When I say speak, then you speak. But here's a lesson from Joseph. Think before you speak. Is that a good one right there? That's a good one. We need to take the heart. Here's a third one. This is a good one for us to, to know and to, to remember. Is that contentment kills resentment. If you can remember that little phrase, contentment kills resentment. The brothers, jealousy and resentment and envy and hatred for their brother and all the good stuff that he was getting, the extra love from dad and the coat that he had and all that stuff built up to the point of hatred, animosity, to the point of lying and murdering, right? And basically what they did is they sold him into slavery, but they dipped his, his coat of many colors in goat's blood and they gave it back to dad and said, dad, we don't know what happened. It looks like he got eaten by wild animals. And they sold off his life and they, they crushed his father's heart. And what was that caused that was they were jealous of what he had. How many relationships are ruined because someone else has something that you wish you had and you get upset about it instead of sitting there and being content and counting the blessings that God has given you for your life and letting God bless them and do whatever they, they can because that's their story and you have your own story. It's contentment can kill resentment. Heard a story of someone this past week. Mom died and left property in Lanikai. And suddenly all the family came out of the woodwork because everybody wanted a piece of property in Lanikai because that's hot property, right? And the one, well, the one son just said, you know what? I don't even care. I don't even want a slice of the pie. I would rather be happy with my family and content with what I have. I don't need any of that kind of stuff. I'd rather be thankful and happy and live a good life than see what it's doing to my family. And they're all beefing. They're all in court. And they're all fighting over something because of resentment. You have contentment. It kills resentment. Hebrews 13.5 says, make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. It's understanding that God is enough for me, being thankful every day. You start thanking God for things every day when you wake up, start thanking people for every little thing that they do. You know what you do? You talk yourself into contentment. Because you just list out loud and you hear yourself saying all the things you're thankful for and all the people you're thankful for. And suddenly that resentment goes away and you're like, wait, I have a pretty good life. Hey, this is pretty good. If I look around, this is good. That, that guy might have something I want. I don't need to look over there. I, I'm, I'm very thankful for what I have. Is that that thankfulness is going to build the contentment. Contentment kills resentment. Here's the fourth lesson I read. I'm going through these fast here. Bitter isn't better. This is a big one. This may be the biggest word that you need to hear this morning. Bitter isn't better. For 20 years... Joe was in prison, he was a slave, he was working in a foreign land and a foreign culture under Pharaoh. He could have been bitter at his brothers all those years. He could have been bitter at Potiphar's wife for trying to seduce him. And then for Potiphar, his boss himself, for turning on him and throwing him in prison. He could have been bitter at that friend that was a cupbearer that forgot to put in a good word with Pharaoh for two years. He could have been bitter at a lot of things, but he chose to let that stuff go and to have forgiveness, and he realized that bitter isn't better. See, it hurts, guys, when family causes something in your life that is painful, and the bitterness can last a long time, more so than if a friend did it, more so than if an acquaintance did it, because family knows how to hurt you, and whether they're trying to or not, man, family can hurt you. Here's a verse that I found. 
when I was going through rough situations, I'm still kind of in a season, but I got healing. I'm not letting bitterness defeat me. But one of the verses that God gave me when I was going through tough stuff with family was this verse in Psalm 27, verse 10. It says, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Even if right now you've got family members that are abandoning you, talking trash on you, have betrayed you, have cheated on you, gossip, lied about you, and you know it hurts because it's family. It hurts bad. Scripture says, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Don't let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath, they threaten me with violence. Yes, I'm confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. So wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. See, sometimes our, our, our perception of the winter seasons we're in is all wrong. Here's our perception is, I'm in this winter season, it's hard, it's rough in my life, and why I'm so bummed is because I'm losing the blessing that I had in the fall season. Man, I'm letting go and, and fall is ending, and now I'm in winter and it's bitter cold and there's nothing blooming in my life, and the perception is wrong. The perception isn't that fall is ending, the perception is that winter is preparing you for spring. And that God is still holding you close. And he's got your back. And he's saying, wait patiently for that to happen. So you can choose bitterness. But if you hold on to bitterness, it consumes you. You know what bitterness does? The bummer about bitterness is you fill up on bitterness so much that bitterness leaks. Bitterness leaks into your other relationships, into your view on all of your resources, your family, your stuff. Bitterness is now the new lens and filter that every decision through your life is then focused. Bitterness leaks and it affects everything else in your life. But you know what else leaks? Love. You fill up on love and love overflows and it becomes the filter which everything else happens. And you know what? To this day, I just want to say, I choose love. I'm going to stick with love because I don't need what bitterness gives me. I stick with love. There's a quote that I want to read. I'm not going to read it because I'm going to let the guy that spoke it say it to you because I think it has that much more impact. Would you take a look at this video really quick? I say to you, I've also decided to stick with love. But I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. Now, I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. But I have seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors in the South to want to hate myself because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love it. Bitterness and hate are too great a burden to bear. I've decided to love, just to stick with love. That says it all, doesn't it, right there? Lord, thank you for that man and what he stood for and all that he did to, to show the love of Jesus in this world. But I'm going to tell you this, guys. Bitter isn't better. If this is the year that you have to make the hard decision to get rid of bitterness and unforgiveness, it's the hardest thing that you do this year, that will be the best thing that you do this year. If you walk away from nothing more from this sermon here today, it's that. Get rid of bitterness. Bitter isn't better. Choose love. Stick to love. Amen? Amen? Here's the last thing I got for you really quickly is have unaffected integrity. 
I think it's really powerful that that Potter, that that Joe and everything that he went through, he could have got jaded. He could have been mad. He could have been, he could have turned from God. God, I don't see your blessing in my life. Why should I choose you? I'm in prison here. I'm a slave. You know, he could have given up when the wife came at him. He could have said, might as well do it. I mean, nothing else is going good in my life. I might as well get a little of this while I can. And he said, no, I'm going to maintain. He chose integrity. That he could have let power ruin him. That's a big thing we don't understand. We see it as blessing. He rose to power in all of Egypt. But you know how power corrupts people? There's, a, there's a, a quote from Abraham Lincoln that says, nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And here's Joseph. He could have, in his rise to power, taken total revenge on his brothers. He almost did, because he has human nature. He battled it like us. But he stood his ground. And he held on to his integrity. He was unaffected by the circumstances, good or bad. I'm going to follow God. Here's what Psalm 62 says, verse 5. Let all that I am wait quietly before God. For my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. Don't compromise because circumstances have compromised around you. Hold fast to God. He alone is your rock and salvation. And you know what? Bottom, bottom line is Joseph was rewarded. God will reward you. You work on these five things. You work on integrity. God's going to reward you. He was able to bring the family back to unity. He was able to leave a legacy to his kids. Man, I want to be remembered by my kids as we saw dad go through a couple hard seasons, but he kept holding on to Jesus. I want to leave that legacy for my kids. Amen? See, someone told me this when I was in the, the, the dark soul of the night or whatever, the darkest night of the soul. That's a quote. Um, when I was going through a really rough time a year or two ago, someone came to me, a pastor friend, and he goes, this is good, Carl, but you need to get your eyes off of your situation and your circumstances. There's people following you. There's people watching you. There's a generation that you're trying to raise up, and you're a father figure to them. And he says this, you need to take the hits so they don't have to. And see, for us, in our lives, in our families, we maintain integrity. No matter what people throw at us, we can still have integrity and be righteous before God, not to let the circumstances affect us. Take the hit so other people don't have to. People are watching you. People are watching you everywhere you go. Let's see if your Christianity's real. Let's see if your Jesus is real. Man, you hold on. You leave a legacy. You don't just change your life and your family. You're responsible for all these other families that are watching you, and you're bringing hope to their families. Are you guys hearing me? It's a responsibility. That's why it's not a restaurant. We can walk away when we get poor service. We're called to shine the light and have integrity in our families. When it's all said and done, Psalm 37, 23 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He delights in his ways. God's got me. He knows what he's doing, and I'm walking for him. Amen. Is that a good word this morning? I want to do this real quick. I want to, I want to talk about uh, uh, something really quickly. Here's what I want you to understand, because this is really good, and you think, I'm going to go apply those five lessons to my life. It doesn't work by that alone. You know what you need? You need what Joseph had. It says the Lord was with him in everything that he did. You can apply these, these human knowledge concepts and say, hey, they work, they're helpful. But if you absolutely want the best life possible, best life on earth and best life eternal, is you got to make sure that God is with you. You got to know that you're a Christian and that you got the power of the Holy Spirit that's working and living in you every single day to do all of these things. You can't do it alone. You'll try and you just don't have the strength to do it. So here's what you need to do. And some of us, maybe we've never done this before. Well, I always want to be a good Christian. I've heard about God and I go to church. It's not enough. What you really need to do is what most of us in this room have done. Surrendered it all to God. Jesus Christ, I trust you. You died on the cross. You paid the price for me, my sin, my rebellion, my issues. 
You went to, to the cross to die for that, to pay the price, so that I wouldn't have to have eternity apart from God the Father. But Jesus took the hit, so we don't have to. And if we put our trust in him and say, God, I receive all that you have for me. I follow you from this day forward. I read all about your knowledge in the Bible. I'm going to get baptized as a symbol of what you're doing on me on the inside. I'm going to let the world know. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be surrounded by the family of God. I'm going to receive and surrender to all that you have planned for my life. When you do that, that's when your whole life changes. That's when your eternity changes. And I want to give an opportunity right now for anybody in the room that you've never made that decision to really, in your heart of hearts, know I'm following Jesus. I'm a Christian, and God's going to move in my life. So we're going to bow our heads right now. Everybody in the room, close your eyes, bow your heads. But if you're someone in the room right now that you want to make that decision to say yes to Jesus and you've never done it before, all in, the real deal, not religion, but relationship. If that's you right now, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. We're going to pray in a minute here. I'm going to lead you in a very quick, simple prayer that just commits to all that I just talked about. I want you to do something right now to be accountable. I want you to let me know you're going to pray that prayer with me in a minute here. And here's all I'm asking. No one else sees you. I'm going to ask you right now when I count to three that you would raise your hand and say, Pastor Carl, I want to pray that prayer right now. I want my life to change. I need Jesus. I need help. And I'm going to commit to that right now. And then we're going to pray a prayer together. I'll pray it out loud. You pray it quietly in your heart to God. But it means that you're all in with God. But before we pray, on the count of three, would you raise your hand? One, two, three. Come on, is there anybody here today you need to pray that? I see one, two, three, four, amen, five, someone in the back looking around. Anybody else in the room? Come on, this is going to change your life. Six, there's someone right there. If I didn't see a hand, seven. I saw about seven people at least in here today. I want you to pray this with me very quickly. In your heart of hearts, you mean it to God. I'll say it out loud. You just pray it in your heart to God. God, I'm here today. I need you. I surrender to you. I believe in what you did on the cross. You died for me to take my place for all the wrongdoing in my life. Lord, you rose again on the third day because you are the Son of God. You proved that publicly to everybody. So you have power over death, sin, shame, guilt, all of that in my life. Lord, I believe that. I receive that from here on out. God, I'm going to live that. You're going to be my father. I'm going to be your son or daughter. Lord, and you're going to be a blessing to my life and to my family because I have you in my life right now, because you're going to be strong with me and you're going to have my back. Not only that, I look forward to eternity with you in heaven. I don't have a fear of death because I know where I'm going and who I serve. Lord, thank you for being my God. From this day forward, begin to bless my life and change me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we praise God for those people really quick? The time is ticking, but we're going to do something special to end here today, and, and we usually do it in a different part of service. We're going to take communion together. Communion is when we take time to remember what Jesus did for us. Now, communion, I, I hope you do not take this lightly. It's not some religious act you do just because you go to church and it makes you feel good. Communion is a holy moment when you're telling God, God, I remember what you did for me, Jesus. You went to the cross. The bread represents your body that was broken and whipped and beaten and put on that cross. The juice represents your blood that you shed for me, not just for Christians altogether, personally for Carl Moore. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. That's what communion is about. Jesus asked us to do it often that we would remember him. So we're going to do that in a minute. We're going to pass the, the trays with the bread and the juice on it. We're going we're gonna to take it. But there's something in Scripture that's really interesting that says how important communion is. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 says this. Think about this. Anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. In light of what we just talked about this morning, God's saying, this is a holy moment where I want you to come to me 
clean with a good open heart, there may be some business you need to take care of in prayer right before you partake in communion. That you're saying, this is a holy moment, but God, I want to come clean and in a way that's worthy to you. So that may be that one of the five things I talked about this morning, you need to spend some time right now in this song, in prayer, and just go, God, I'm coming before you clean. Would you forgive me of this? I repent of this in my life right now. I want to take communion in a, in a righteous way where I'm honoring you, but I got some stuff I need to work on. And maybe you can't talk to that person right now that you have problems with, but you're going to commit to God in your heart that, that you're asking him to get in there to fix that situation. Is that good? And we're going to take communion together. So I'm going to pray right now. The ushers are going to start passing out the trays. And in this last song that they sing, when you've done some business with God, when it's appropriate, take communion and just leave the cup on your seat. And uh, the ushers will get that before the next service. But let's pray right now as the trays are going. God, we come before you right now. We don't take communion lightly. Lord, it's a heavy thing. We're remembering what you did for us. Lord, one of the things you say in scripture is that you forgive us as we forgive other people. Lord, it could be that some of us are holding on to unforgiveness or bitterness or any of the things that we talked about this morning. I pray, Father God, in communion right now as we remember that you forgave us, Lord, that we could let go of some things and we could, we could give it to you so that we could forgive other people. Lord, help us to take whatever steps necessary this week to work on the family relationships that are going on. We give you this time and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.